We have all seen headlines about startup companies selling to large corporations. But have you ever met a founder who actually made it through to a major exit? Today's guest went from entry-level business manager to CEO of Pet First and grew it until it was acquired by MetLife, one of the largest life insurance corporations in America. For decades, women have been climbing the corporate ladder. We have been asking for seats at the table. When we really should, just buy the whole damn company. Welcome to the Renegade Ventures podcast, where we uncover a different path to business ownership. We talk about the ins and outs of acquiring and growing businesses as assets. These assets grow our wealth and our communities, and it's a lot more accessible than you may think. I am your host, Ellie Puckett, and for 10 years, I was the poster child for entrepreneurship. Now I'm a trained business broker. I help people buy and sell businesses. I'm working on my own acquisitions, and I am passionately advocating for more women to become acquisition entrepreneurs. This path isn't easy, but it is worth it. And for those of you who choose it, that is what makes you a renegade. Welcome back to the Renegade Ventures podcast. As you know, I spent 10 years in the technology startup industry both as a founder and as a startup coach. I helped hundreds of businesses get up and running. But when I learned about small business acquisition, I stopped in my tracks. I had never even thought about buying a company before. That caused me to re-examine everything that I knew. I realized that there's a lot of information about starting businesses. There's a little about growing businesses and almost nothing about selling them. Today's guest, Katie Blakely, went from the founding team of Pet First Pet Insurance to guiding it through a successful sales process. That resulted in MetLife's acquisition in January of 2020. She has since gone on to join Executi Value Advisors. Executi helps business owners navigate major transitions in their businesses, from startup to exit and everything in between. Katie is a passionate entrepreneurial leader and has successfully navigated incredibly tough conversations and negotiations. And I am sure you will learn a lot from her story. Katie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. And so before we jump into talking about the selling part to a major corporation, there's always a beginning to every story. And so I just want to take us all the way back to you being a part of that founding team, but Mm -hmm. not CEO. How did you go from, you know, kind of being that entry-level business manager to becoming the CEO to growing this corporation? Yeah, and I I wish there was some great story about purpose or um, just with the bigger goal in mind. But really, short term, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do with my life, certainly with my career. Uh, I thought initially I'd gone to school, uh, majored in advertising and mass communication, and I thought working in an advertising agency would be really cool. That didn't really work out. So I stumbled a bit kind of thinking, all right, well, I have to figure out what my next move is. And I thought selfishly that working for a startup would be a great way to try on a lot of different hats. Um, get to try on finance, accounting, get to try on operations. Marketing was where I thought I wanted to spend most of my time. But that was the the really genesis for me. I knew these two gentlemen, Lance and Robbins and Brent Hinton, were talking about creating a pet insurance company. And I approached them just to say, I'm a great figure outer. <laughs> I can try on a lot of things. I can do a lot of the work that needs to be done as we organize this business and figure out where we want to target our consumer, what kind of pet insurance provider we want to be. Um, So that's really how I got my start was just, I need to try on a lot of different hats and a startup environment was a great place to do that. It really is. I mean, I started my career in that same kind of position where I end up being the head of business operations for this technology startup. And I just got to do a bunch that would have been, you know, quote unquote, above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. And you learn so much from that. So take us from, you know, kind of starting at this entry level to how you 
transitioned into that CEO role? Yeah, so being one of the early team players, one of three, it was a good opportunity for me, like I said, to try on a lot of different things. And um, distribution was really important for us in the early days. Lansen was our funding. He had had some successful exits prior to Pet First. So we were very budget conscious early on. We had a set amount of funds, not a blank check. It was actually month to month, we would go to Lansen with what our anticipated expenses would be, a justification for those expenses. So it was like we were doing fundraising every single month, um, which made us very responsible, good stewards of that funding, I think. But distribution was important. And that was really where I had a lot of personal and professional success early on. I really liked developing these relationships. I really liked working with other retailers in the pet space, animal welfare players, Um, people who could be good promoters of the pet insurance brand and product. And so business development came to me a little more naturally, building those relationships, identifying opportunities, ways that we could work together. That was mutually beneficial for these brands, um, but also financially beneficial for Pet First, where we weren't paying a ton for marketing, direct-to-consumer marketing expenses. We were leveraging the power of our distribution partners, brands like Kroger, Home Again Microchip, um, those are some of our early partnerships that really helped us scale much more quickly than a lot of players that were entering the pet insurance space at that time. Fast forward several years, it must have been 2012, 2013, uh, where the acting CEO, Brent Hinton, one of the other co-founders, he wanted to move out of the day-to-day operations and into a much more strategic board-focused role. So I knew that this was happening and kind of once again, like in 2004, where I raised my hand and said, I'd be a great candidate for this. I did it again in uh, 2013 to say, why not me for CEO? And the quick and easy answer was because you have no experience. (laughs) You've managed a handful of employees. We were still incredibly lean at that time. Um, I was still focused on sales, marketing, business development. And I did feel like I had a lot to prove still, and I still had to earn my opportunity to, to be the CEO. But I continued to be uh, noisy in very respectful ways about why I thought I would be a great candidate for the role. And I think at the end, <laughs> the board kind of had the idea of, why not? Uh, there's no good reason not to. There's maybe a lot of good reasons why somebody else might be a better fit. Um, but I do still credit my relationships with the board, with other leaders in the organization. Uh, and also I had proven that I could go from peer to leader in a lot of other situations inside Pet First. And I think that served me well as CEO. In 2013, I officially stepped into that role. Uh, and it has been still my favorite job of my career, growing that business, assembling our team, our incredibly talented team has just been kind of the joy of my career. And I hope that everybody has an opportunity at some point to lead projects or lead a team or, you know, find something that you are incredibly passionate about the way we believed in our pet insurance product and the policyholders that we were serving. Um, Because it's just so much fun when you find work that you believe in and people that you want to work alongside like that. When I started my journey to buy a business, I quickly realized not all business brokers are created equal. That's why I chose to partner with Murphy Business Sales. Murphy has 150 offices across the country. Their deal size and close rate is significantly higher than the national average. But most importantly, the staff was trained, professional, friendly, and they didn't flinch when I was seven months pregnant. If you're looking to buy or sell a business, Murphy is here to guide you through the process. You can go to murphybusiness.com make sure that you mention Ellie Puckett and Renegade Ventures Podcast. How big were you guys when you moved into the role of CEO? Um, we must have been just above probably mid-30s, 35, 36 people. Um, keep in mind the way our business was structured, we of course did sell directly to pet parents, uh, but also working with distribution partners. We had our own internal operations team, so call center people who were taking calls from prospective policyholders, servicing existing policyholders, paying claims. We also had our own internal IT department, um, an HR department of one, uh, finance and accounting as well. So we were again a very lean team, but I love that type of environment because. 
there's no room for mediocrity. When you are really lean, um, everybody's got to pull their weight. And it really is uh, just a great demonstration of what a team is capable of because there are no silos. Everybody's working together for the common goal of growing the business, not just to say, well, I'm just a IT developer. I just do my job and stay in my lane. Even our developers were asking tough questions about, is what we're doing really furthering the goals of the business? Or are we focusing on things that are, you know, not going to make a significant impact? Right. So you talked about immediately starting in that kind of business development relationship building role with some major corporations like Kroger. Mm -hmm. How did you get your foot into those doors and talk a little bit about those conversations or negotiations. I mean, obviously that set you up for the conversations you would have later down the road. Mm -hmm. You were already used to talking to these brands that were so much bigger than Pet First. Yes. And I think we leveraged our size as an advantage that we were going to be so nimble, so responsive that unlike larger players in the pet health insurance space, we were going to have the ability to help them scale their businesses and really be the expertise that they need in the pet health insurance side of the house. So pet insurance at that point in time, the market penetration rate was right around 1%, but kind of pioneers in the space like Kroger uh, that were aggressive in understanding that financial services are an important part of the retail experience. So they did introduce a pet insurance product in their stores in 2007, we did a pilot in their King Superstores, and then in 2008, we launched Countrywide. But it was really that we could be that expert. We could help them succeed in pet insurance, which would help grow their pet category overall. We really made a business case for them about why we would be the best partner, not that we would just fulfill the terms of the contract, but we would help them meet their goals as well. I didn't even realize that you could buy pet insurance from Kroger. Yes. So it's interesting because the regulatory environment for insurance in the U.S. is a little tricky to navigate. Pet insurance is regulated as property and casualty insurance, so never tell policyholders, but the states perceive their pets as property, so kind of akin to livestock. And you have to be compliant. Even small businesses have to make sure they're checking all those boxes. Um, So it's actually a two-step process. You can lean on Kroger to promote the product, to advocate for it, to endorse it, but still the consumer has to contact Pet First, representing Kroger's pet insurance, um, via uh, an online form um, or the call center to actually buy the product. You can't buy it directly in a Kroger. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of times people don't realize the strategic partnerships that go on in what might seem like a business to consumer product, but actually has a lot of its other revenue streams in business to business mm-hmm. avenues. And I think there's a takeaway for people who are looking at who might already be entrepreneurs listening to this podcast on how they might grow their business through those strategic relationships and distribution partners in a way that doesn't even necessarily sound exactly like a normal distribution partner situation. Well, and I think the other thing is knowing that once the deal was signed, which was always a huge win for us, winning those new partners, that's when the real work begins because it's not worth anything until you start getting traction, until you start getting throughput. Important for our small business, but also for Kroger as well, because within a year they could have said, you know what, just nothing's happening here. It doesn't make sense for us to continue. So we knew that the second that those signatures were on the on the agreement that we needed to get to work making things happen and making sure that we were taking advantage of every lead that Kroger was giving us, converting those leads, optimizing success so that we could demonstrate, like, see, this is a really important part of your overall business strategy. Okay, so you've you've built this team, you've moved into the role of CEO, you're having these relationships with really large corporations. Um Tell me about when you all decided that it was maybe time to sell. Were you approached or did you all say, we feel like we've hit these metrics Mm -hmm. and it's time to go look for a acquisition? So a couple of things to to reflect on talking about preparing for for the sales process. Firstly, Lanzan and Brent as the primary co-founders and the private primary um, shareholders as well. They had always intended to sell this business, and that was clear to me and other leaders in the team from day one. 
And I think that was really important as a mindset, not to say that we were just building this business to sell it, but having that end goal in mind really helped shape some of the strategic decisions we made from a team perspective, from a business perspective and everything in between. In terms of timing, you know, I don't think it was ever to say like 2020 is a, is a line in the sand and always as it is with growing small businesses, it takes a little longer than maybe you would have thought it would. So I think Lanzen and Brent were very eager to, you know, identify an exit strategy. We did have, you know, some private equity investors approach us to see if uh, we were interested in leveraging their investment to grow the business. It's not to say we were necessarily targeting a strategic buyer. It's just that we wanted to run our business as clean as possible, as scalable as possible. Make sure that we always had a model that if somebody were to come in and invest in our business, we knew exactly what we would do with those extra millions, tens of millions of dollars. So even though we hadn't articulated a timeline per se, we knew that we were profitable. We knew that we had an excellent growth trajectory. We knew that the industry was growing quite aggressively uh, in pet insurance overall in the U.S. So it was by coincidence that we ran into MetLife at a industry conference in 2019. And we, I remember the conversations that we had with the head of sales and the CFO at the time that we said, what a coup that would be if we could get MetLife as a partner before we go after run an official sales process. Like what a great partnership that would be because they had had a partner in the pet insurance space. We knew that they knew the industry and we had surmised by their presence at the conference that they were looking for a new partner. And we did, in fact, we, we sent our head of sales into the bar where the MetLife executives were having a drink after the, the conference sessions had closed. He said, your job is to secure a meeting with MetLife. Go, don't come out until you have secured that meeting. Uh, and he did fulfill that obligation. And so that was May of 19. And then by June of 19, we had our first meeting with MetLife in our Jeffersonville headquarters. So it was a fast process after that. In that meeting, we learned that they weren't, in fact, looking for a new partner. They were looking for a, a target to acquire. And so we had some internal conversations and said, yeah, we're open to what they might want to say. We had actually secured a broker by that time in early 2019 just because we knew we wanted to have our broker involved early so that they could advise us on things that we need to optimize, things that we might need a little course correction on mm -hmm. uh, before we officially went out onto the market. So that life trumped that whole process and we never ran a, an official sales process uh, in the end, but it was good to be prepared for anything. And I think that that's really smart for any company that's looking to be acquired, whether you are a startup or you are somebody who's run their business for 30 years and you know that it's time to sell, getting yourself prepared for that process is always good because you're ready when the opportunity arises. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the themes throughout your story is is like aggressively seizing those opportunities. Um, and I just absolutely love that. I've been called an aggressive woman a time or two myself. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that that's kind of the whole vibe that we're trying to create at Renegade is how do we seize those opportunities? How do we become the people that, that grow our wealth through buying and selling businesses? How are we, you know, relentlessly running after our goals? Mm -hmm. And so just hearing you saying, I raised my hand to be CEO, and then we were, we were preparing and we raised our hands to be bought mm -hmm. um, because we, we had been preparing and we knew what our end goal was and it always was to sell the business. And I think that that's a, a good kind of through line takeaway for people who are considering. I also love that you had already sought out the um, advice of a broker to help you prepare for that, even though at the moment you were just thinking of MetLife as a strategic partner. Yeah. It, Again, you were prepared when that opportunity came so that you could take advantage of it. I think that is exactly right. Like whether we were lucky or smart, I think it was a blend of both. We were well prepared. So when the opportunity manifested at that conference um, and we sent Clint into the bar to secure that meeting, you know, come to find out MetLife was already deep in talks with two other pet health insurance providers that they were vetting and considering making offers on. So we were late to the party, the party that technically we weren't even invited to, but we had a strong story, we had a strong business. 
And so, yeah, to your point, it was good that we were aggressive and we went in there and said, you know, you've got to have a conversation with Pet First before you decide what you're going to do. So now tell us about the deal. I get that you can't tell us like the numbers exactly, but I would love for people to understand kind of what went into creating um, how you all sold. A ton of credit goes to Lance and Robbins, who was our chairman of the board and one of the co-founders uh, in this process, because he'd gone through so many exits before with other businesses. He had sold to private equity. He'd had earnout structures. He had some strategic acquisitions. So he had great experience that played into how he helped negotiate this, this deal with MetLife. Um, one of the first and most important things that he pushed on was, okay, MetLife, we intend to run a sales process. If you'd like to buy pet first, you need to come in just as with a real estate transaction or anything else. You know, if you want to avoid this business being put on the market, come in with a very aggressive offer. Um, because we have nothing to lose by running the sales process and you might lose out on the opportunity or end up paying more in the long run. So Come with your best and final, please. And uh, me not having any experience in this space uh, with the sales process, I'm like, oh, gee, are you too aggressive? Are, are you sure? Do we? I mean, what a nice company to, to have this exit with. Um, we had a lot of respect for the team at MetLife. It's, it's tricky because I was guilty of falling in love very quickly with our prospective acquirer. You get to know their strategy. You get to know their intentions with why they even want a pet insurance company, how much they want to invest in it. Um, unlike some other acquisitions that had already happened in the space, we knew that MetLife truly intended to grow it. They have excellent distribution opportunities in the employee benefit space where we had a foothold, but it accounted for less than 10% of our overall business. And we knew that through the employers, we could really scale this business aggressively. Um, and MetLife was prepared to do it. So I was guilty of falling in love and saying, well, let's not be too harsh. Let's not turn them off. Um, but Lansden handled this incredibly well due to his experience and just knowing that in the end, yes, we could still find a very attractive exit uh, financially, uh, that strategically could be a great fit. I think it's one of those things in deal making that you have to be ready to walk at any given time. And it's terrifying, especially when you have fallen in love and kind of knowing where those boundaries are in upfront, whether you are the buyer or you are the seller, what are those things that make you say, we've hit the boundary and mm -hmm. either we can stay within my boundary or I can walk and being okay that this deal might not be the deal, but that comes with a lot of experience and guts. So I can see how it'd be very hard to be in the situation where you know that they've already been courting mm -hmm. two other companies and you're the late player. Mm -hmm. And then to be like, actually, we're really sexy and you can get in <laughs> if you want, but we're cool if you don't. And, but that internal, like terrifying, like jazzedness, but also just like poker face that I can't imagine what you had to go through with that. Exactly. And I, you know, I, Again, not having gone through this experience, like it's, it's so interesting going back to the importance of a broker to have somebody at your side who has seen hundreds of deals like this that can say, yes, there are some boundaries that you should establish early on that if this isn't satisfied that you will walk away. I mean, even at the 11th hour, there were things that were still left to negotiate and we had this hard line of if they're not addressed in a manner that's acceptable to pet first, we will walk. And I had no nails, cuticle beds are destroyed. I am just like wondering where we're going to go from here. But it was a, a bit of a whirlwind romance because we had those meetings in June and then we had a letter of intent in place in August. The purchase agreement was in place in November and the deal was announced in December and closed in January of 2020. So it happened quickly and it was a tumultuous emotional roller coaster. Like professionally, it was some of the most interesting times in my career, but undoubtedly some of the most stressful too. Because at the same time, you're running this business and growing this business as if MetLife doesn't even exist. Because well, your employees certain, don't know. They don't know. Diligence was incredibly tough. It was tough on our leadership team. There was a very small group of us that were responding to these requests, a group of Two, me and the CFO that grew to a group of four or five eventually, but on the MetLife side, they had 70 individuals that were 
peppering us with requests, some very benign and some incredibly sophisticated that required a very robust response. And it took a lot of wind out of the the collective sales of the team, just because I guess at that point, it's kind of akin to dating that you think, all right, well, MetLife, I feel exposed. They're going to know that we're small and unsophisticated. They're asking for extremely detailed yes. spreadsheets. We're of- not a Fortune 50 company. And there was a lot of analysis that we had never even conducted. At the same time, though, we were small and unsophisticated. Like they knew the asset that they were exploring, but it was a tough process to go through. And it was an incredibly busy and overwhelming time. So then by the time you get to that finish line, which isn't really a finish line because in a sense it's the starting line. Like, okay, now we've fulfilled all these requests. We've negotiated the purchase agreement and we're going to start our new life together. We're going to get married. (laughs) We're going to see what the future holds. So incredibly exciting, but my gosh, incredibly stressful too. Every time I have started or looked at buying a business, I called Dave Etkin and the team at the Louisville Small Business Development Center. There are SBDC offices across the country, and they exist to help you start and grow your business. Best of all, most of their services are completely free. If you need help starting a business, filing an LLC, making financial projections, writing a business plan, prepping for an SBA loan, or you just need some business advice, contact the Small Business Development Center. The contact information is in our show notes. So you mentioned earnout and some of those boundaries that you all had. Can you talk a little bit about what were those boundaries? What did you say the deal must include these things? Yeah. So two key important things was that the two primary shareholders and board members and, and co-founders, Lanes and Brent, wanted to be out completely. They didn't want to have any transition period They wanted all of their shares purchased and no responsibilities from an employment perspective going forward. They were purposeful in how that was managed because from day one, they didn't participate in early meetings after we had agreed, okay, this is now a purchase conversation, not a partnership conversation. They didn't participate with the intention of this is the leadership team. This is Katie as a CEO, Michael as a CFO, the rest of the leadership team. So MetLife got to know us without Lansden and Brent, which was so smart and so intentional on their part. The other big piece was that we didn't want an earnout. You know, some of the the learnings that Lansden had in his experiences of selling businesses before is oftentimes, especially a strategic buyer, will assign a lot of cost, a lot of overhead for their legal, for their compliance, for their HR. And suddenly your lean and profitable team may not be as profitable as they were a year ago. So he wanted to make sure that it was a clean sale in the sense that there was no holdbacks outside of our control. Now, we did have a couple of holdbacks, a couple of escrowed funds that were allocated for certain certain aspects of the business that we had leveraged in the sales process to say this is growing incredibly well. And if it didn't fulfill or if it was riskier from a compliance obligation, MetLife wanted some of the, the sales proceeds to be held back for that. But there was no earnout, and that was important for the leadership team from day one. And was the deal mostly sold on EBITDA, or how did you all kind of assign value? Yeah, great question. And that was another area in which we negotiated because, yes, we wanted to market the business based on our EBITDA performance. But we knew that we were running the sales process a little bit earlier than we had intended. Uh, So we made the assertion, even though our conversation started before the close of 2019, so we were mid-year 2019, that we wanted to sell based on a multiple of our projected 2020 EBITDA, which was unusual at the time, but we argued that we're on an aggressive growth trajectory. We've got a great and scalable platform, a lean team, that we can fulfill these expectations for 2020. So if you want to kind of trump the sales process and give us that best and final offer. It should be based on an aggressive multiple of our projected 2020 EBITDA. And it worked. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so cool. So you all didn't want any earn outs. Can you explain a little bit for our audience what that means exactly? Sure. So an earn out can be part of your purchase agreement, meaning that a portion, sometimes a significant portion of your sales proceeds can be held back 
based on agreed upon targets for sales, for profitability, for growth overall. Just like with any commitment, there are outside factors, even internal factors that could affect your likelihood to hit those those targets. And we wanted to avoid that risk. We wanted the business to be valued as it was or as we expected it to be at the end of 2020 without anything held back in terms of, you know, part of the sales proceeds dependent upon our performance in outlying years. I think that there can be benefits to earnouts and then there's plenty of deals that they're just flat required to mm-hmm. get to the kind of sale price that you want that either the bank won't lend on that whole price or it's just so much is in the projection that the business that's buying you requires that kind of earnout structure but many many business owners that I know really do on their sale side try to avoid that structure because of the risk you're having a new team coming in or to your point you've been running with a one HR person and now would they allocate for HR people mm-hmm. and it would actually hurt the EBITDA mm-hmm. and hurt the earnout rate. Exactly. And so that's one reason why businesses who are selling often try to avoid that and they do want that cash buyout. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about that due diligence. Okay. So you've come to some sort of purchase agreement. They've they've issued a letter of intent. You all are doing the due diligence and kind of working through the details of that sale agreement. But talk about due diligence to a big corporation. You said there was 70 people on the due diligence team on their side. Yes. So there were an incredible amount of folks. And just, you know, considering the size of MetLife, it's understandable. And there's a lot of expertise inside the walls of MetLife. And so when you're having an expert on compliance, when you're having an expert on licensing, when you're having an expert on all these things that affect our business, it meant that there were a lot of experts around the table. And we had to do quite a bit of presentations, preparation, and really in some ways it was to prove that our business was worth what we asserted it was worth. You know, we made the very aggressive push that this business needs to be valued on what we will be at the end of 2020, knowing that it's mid-2019 at this point. And again, there's a lot of outside factors that could affect our growth or potentially lack thereof. And they wanted a strong justification for our relationships with distribution, our policyholder engagement, our relationships with our underwriters. Keep in mind that Pet First was structured as a managing general agency, which meant We do everything for the insurance business except underwrite the risk on our policies. So there's an outside entity, an insurance carrier that underwrites the risk on the policies and they authorize us to pay the claims for dog pneumonia or, you know. Surgery. Exactly, exactly. So the kind of lifeblood of the pet insurance is paying the claims and we work with an outside carrier to underwrite that risk. So all of these relationships are incredibly important. All of these distribution models are incredibly important. And this was a business that MetLife was familiar with, but not an expert in. So they needed an education on how does pet insurance work? What are our risk factors? Who are our team members? Where do we need to grow? Where do we need additional investment? Because be mindful at the same time that they're doing this diligence, they're not just evaluating this asset. They're building the business plan or starting the skeletal business plan that would become our plan for the next three years Mm -hmm. as MetLife Pet Insurance. Um, And I made the mistaken assumption several times that, you know, we started with a list of 11 requests and we thought, wow, this is comprehensive, but very manageable. We fulfilled those 11 requests and then 15 more come. And you (laughs) fulfill those 15 requests and 10 more come. And so we went through iteration after iteration of that. And again, being mindful that we're still trying to run and grow the business at the same time, it was taxing and somewhat overwhelming. And our broker was a great advocate for us to say, listen, you've crossed a line enough. Yeah. We don't need to go through, you know, all of the nitty gritty details of every policyholder experience, every email that's ever been sent to policyholders. You know, there was just a lot that they were, I think, interested to learn but not required to learn to close the deal. So yeah, MetLife had a lot of experts at the table and it was a great introduction because those were the experts that we partnered with post-close as well. So in some ways it was good, but it's much easier to say that now that that diligence period is in the rear view mirror. I think that sometimes people don't know that role that broker 
place. And so one of the biggest things that we do as brokers is manage the relationship between the buyer and seller because after it is sold, you still have to work together. This is a marriage. (laughs) There's times when that broker needs to come in and be the ass Mm -hmm. and needs to say, no, I'm not doing that. And, and that preserves the relationship between you as the CEO, that's going to transition to this new acquiring company and that acquirer. There needs to be that third party that can come in and defend so that you can still be the amazing human and person as CEO in that negotiation standpoint. And that is one of those under thought of parts of the broker when they are starting right in a deal. You know, we, we do help often find buyers and we do help negotiate and we do manage all the due diligence and what's called a data room, which just holds all the information. Um, and we do keep all the NDAs in track of small businesses, but there is also this like relationship part where it's our goal to get everyone to the closing table, but also protect the seller and their interest and making sure that, the, that they still have a relationship because you will not sell your business at the end of the day if you two hate each other at the end. Absolutely. Um, because it's so much about, you know, eventually that if you are the seller and you end up hating the buyer, you won't want them to be the legacy of that company. Exactly. And yeah. that you're absolutely right. That is our broker was a huge help in that regard because we could still maintain as a team, our leadership team, that we were collaborative, that we were engaged and that we cared about MetLife's interests as well as our own. And mm-hmm. the broker could absolutely be the bad guy when necessary to say, okay, this is nonsense. It's too much. We're, we're done. We need your last and final request because this is becoming ridiculous in terms of the diligence process. Yeah. And I also want to point out that like there is a, we've had a couple of conversations recently about startups versus small businesses in the acquisition game. And most of the time in the small to medium size established business acquisition game, you're not selling on a projected EBITDA. Mm-hmm. This is a startup thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that is the high growth, high scale selling to a major corporation that you get the ability to sell on your future EBITDA because mm-hmm. the idea is that you're going to keep growing and keep scaling. Whereas in small business land, you are selling on what you already did. Mm-hmm. And so there is like a difference in there. So I just kind of want to note that as people are thinking that they're going to go sell on this projection even coming up with those projections in the first place, it's actually a very detailed process that tends to be in the CFO accountant land that you'd have to be of a certain size company to begin with to even justify that. And you spent a lot of time with this major corporation justifying that number is real. Exactly. And I think personally, one of the things that kind of was a success metric for me is I was so adamant throughout the diligence process that I didn't want MetLife to come off of the purchase price that they had named in their letter of intent. Knowing that the diligence process, it's not like they were going to uncover all this great stuff and say, you know what, let's kick that up by 10%, you know, that it would just come down. Right. Um, And fortunately, and this was, again, I consider kind of a personal success for our team. It didn't change at all. Um, We were able to defend that purchase price that they had set forth and we agreed upon initially in that letter of intent. Um, So all of the diligence, all the headache associated with that process, I feel like was justified at the end of the day because we, we held firm to the purchase price that they had originally proposed. Awesome. So now you've gotten to the purchase price, you've gone through due diligence, and now you're transitioning what had been a really small company into this major corporation. Mm -hmm. What does that take? Um, What role did you end up kind of assuming within this major corporation? Yeah. So we, firstly, we announced the deal. It was announced in the wall street journal on December 5th, 2019, which we thought was so cool. And it was great in that we could announce it to the industry, but more importantly to our team, before the closing happened. Which is um, not super normal again. Totally not normal. Yeah, because yeah, there's still things that could happen, um, but they didn't happen. And so we had a period of roughly four weeks. I mean, the holidays were in that period, of course, but to ready ourselves for the change that was coming. We closed on 
gosh, January 8th, 2020. And in my mind, I mistakenly thought this is a finish line. We're going to pop champagne on January 8th. And um, it didn't really happen that way. The CFO of Group Benefits, the organization that we'd be a part of in MetLife, came over and uh, met with us in Jeffersonville and was talking to us a little bit about how our business would evolve, what kind of reporting we need to generate. And I'm like, where do we get a warm hug? Do we get a party? Yeah, exactly. So it was a bit unusual in the sense that I, if I could go back and give myself some advice, it would be to talk to more CEOs who had gone through the process and get some advice from them on how they navigated that transition, how they help support their team through that transition. Of course, early questions are always what's going to change about my job for me personally, but also for, gosh, at that time, close to 70 pet first employees, what's going to change? Um, And it was a tough time because I couldn't really articulate how that change would manifest, knowing that some change is coming, but MetLife uh, committed to, and they held up their bargain that there'd be no change in personnel. No one would lose their job as a result of the acquisition, even though there was some considerable overlap. Of course, MetLife has tons of resources, but they really loved the business that we had been growing and they had confidence in this team that we could continue to focus exclusively on pet insurance and scale that business appropriately inside the walls of MetLife. Um, You know, another interesting kind of macro consideration is this is January of 2020. By February of 2020, MetLife is already talking to us about the pandemic. You know, before businesses of pet first size were really wrestling with what does it mean for our business or our way of working, MetLife being very risk adverse uh, was having these conversations. I remember telling our CFO, I'm so grateful that they're our parent now because this is tough. I don't know what is the right thing for our team. I don't know what is the right thing and how we serve our policyholders. So MetLife made a lot of decisions for us and our way of working. And like everyone else, everything changed officially in March of 2020. Um, and at that time I was grateful to be a part of MetLife for the reasons I mentioned that these were tough and heavy considerations for the time. And they had a team of 60 plus people that were thinking about only this versus us having it as one of 15 priorities at the time. And I I only mentioned the pandemic primarily because I started to feel a little uncomfortable inside MetLife. I think I had so much concern for how our operations would integrate, how our financial procedures would integrate. I wanted to make sure that our team felt like their goals were aligned with MetLife's goals. Um, that was incredibly important to me. I wanted to people's passion and enthusiasm for the pet first business to translate inside MetLife as well. And a regret I have for the process is I didn't do that same work for myself. Um, And so I started to feel like I had stumbled a bit, that I had lost my own personal sense of purpose inside MetLife. But I think the pandemic occurring at the same time was kind of like everybody's having a hard time right now. Everybody's trying to figure out, wow, a lot of people were baking bread and, you know, living their best life and gardening. I was like, I'm not sure what my work means to me now inside MetLife. So I think that was kind of the beginning of a, of a seed planting for me that maybe MetLife would not be my permanent home. Right. Well, and I think that for a lot of people, it is hard to stay after the sale. Um, if you have been the, the CEO, like Mm -hmm. in, in even medium acquisition land where it's just one strategic investor to the next strategic investor and you are a general manager and your life doesn't change too terribly much. It's not a big deal, but if you've been a founding team member you grew it to what it was and you had a lot of autonomy and now you're a part of a major corporation. It is a big success, but it isn't the life that you necessarily set out to create in the first place, right? Like it's not a part the people who are built to go from three to 70 aren't the, always the same people that are built to be in something that's really above even a hundred people, right. like, you know, even 200 people. And so there are that brand of entrepreneur that ends up doing the exit and then go doing it again, right? Mm -hmm. Like going and starting something new, which is a great transition to talk about what you're doing now. So talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about Execuity Value Advisors, um, how you made the decision after your sabbatical to become a part of that 
So I made the tough decision to leave MetLife um, in the first quarter of 2022. And um, I'm one of those people that it's hard enough to make the decision to leave a business that you help build, a great organization like MetLife. There was nothing per se wrong. It's just didn't feel as right as it had before. So I did step away. And as you mentioned, I took a a springtime, summertime sabbatical, which was great, even though I was a bit uncomfortable during that period, not knowing what's next. I'm a planner. I'm an executor. Like I like to know what the future holds. And that was a period of initial discomfort, but also I don't know the right way to describe it. It was just a great period to kind of rediscover what I liked about life, not just work, but what I liked about life and make sure that whatever next phase of my career that I was making more room for what I loved so that I could have that great experience again with doing something that I love and feeling the impact of my work. So I've known Linda Rufinock, who's the founder of Executy for quite a while. Um, She's one of the first people I met when I moved to Louisville in the early 2000s. And I was talking to her a bit about my experience with the with the exit, the tough reasons that I decided to leave MetLife. And I, you know, was just kind of lamenting to her, I wish I could go back and work with my former self. I wish I could give myself a little advice on, you know, how to pay attention to what I love about work and make sure that that translates into the newly acquired business as well. Uh, And I remember distinctly, she leaned across the table that we were having lunch and she was like, you know, this is what I do, right? Like I do work with your former self and selves. So she invited me and I I had set up the lunch with the purpose of getting a better understanding of what is consulting? What is business consulting? Like it seems so nebulous to me. Um, How do I decide if this is a good fit for me? And she very graciously invited me to kind of try before I buy work alongside her. She had a couple of clients that she thought I might be a good fit for. Um, And it has been such a great experience to work alongside business leaders in varying stages of their business, but that are navigating these transitions. You know, I talk about startup life kind of like you're racing up a flight of stairs. And every time you think you've reached the top, it's actually just a pivot. It's a landing and there's a whole nother flight just waiting for you. And those landings can be tough. You know, it can be lonely being a founder, being a CEO um, and navigating these changes in your business. So that's what Executive Value Advisors do. We work with, with business owners, primarily female founders that are navigating these transitions, ultimately with the idea in mind that they do want to exit, that this is, um, you know, something that they're very passionate about today, but working with the end in mind. So it's been a great experience. Absolutely. And I think that what makes you all unique is that you, you both have that lived experience, right? I think that exactly. sometimes people who are in consulting or coaching, um, there is a, there can be a stigma about some of those things and people who are searching for that kind of help want people who have lived their shoes for mm-hmm. real. And both of you have that experience and can really help people navigate that transition, both personally and from like the dollars and cents perspective. One of the things about being a business consultant and even that like tension that you felt was like, I want to help people in these transitions. I want to help businesses grow and make that exit. But we all have this like kind of preconceived notion about what business consulting or coaching is. And that sometimes can be negative because Mm -hmm. there's people out there who don't have your lived experience and what has made it awesome about what you and Linda do is it is your lived experience. You've both lived through major business transitions. You both have grown and scaled businesses and then had those things be sold in different ways. And so I think that that brings a lot of value, a lot of comfort to people walking through those transitions, but you are both also moms Mm -hmm. and spouses (laughs) and just incredibly driven and aggressive women, which is my favorite kind of human beings. And so there's just a lot that's at play. And I think for us, we've talked a little bit about that life or part of this equation about being parents and navigating all of this, you know, newness, whether that be the pandemic or whether that be selling your business. And a lot of times I try to not have that conversation completely on this podcast because there's a lot that talks about 
being moms who do it all. Right. Right. But there is a real aspect in that you can help women who are going through these transitions that have all those pieces in their life as well. I think it's just so important to have other people you trust at your table Mm -hmm. that, like you said, have navigated some of the same challenges, figured out some of the same opportunities, um, but that also are open and candid about you always have choices. You cannot have it all, but you do have the opportunity to decide what you're going to go after right now and what you might pivot or pull back on so that you can focus on some other opportunity or thing that interests you. I do think early in my career, I kind of had that mindset and we've talked about this before, like type A, we go after it, we work hard. That's the way I was in school. That's the way I was in my early career. And that if I need to do more, I'll just give more. And, you know, stepping into that CEO role in 2013, I got married in 2014. I had a baby at 2017. My priorities were evolving as our business was really hitting its stride and many days were tough because I felt like I was making sacrifices, but it was when I realized that I have autonomy. I can decide what I'm willing to sacrifice and what I'm not willing to sacrifice. And that was great. And so eye opening, not just for me, but I think for other leaders in our team, um, up and coming team members, especially females who were like, do I decide, is it career or family? You can do both. It's just, you're not going to be a plus at everything all of the time. And it's not necessarily always about that balance. It's about just finding the mix that works for you. Exactly. And it just comes through experimentation. Um, Some days you'll be disappointed in the choices you made and you'll say, why did I stay late for this meeting and and miss this thing with my family? And other times, um, you know, I, I, I wrote about this recently that I left my infant with RSV in the hospital with her very capable father and medical professionals so that I could meet with a prospective recruit for Pet First. That was the most important thing for me at that time. Um, And Charlotte, now six, knows that and knows that you make choices every single day. And that's why you have a community, hopefully at home, at work, and more broadly, just throughout your life. That's such good advice. And it's so real and talking about just the realness of life being in the hospital with a child and making those really tough decisions so I just want to thank you for your authenticity thank you for your transparency and talking about this deal from selling pet first to met life these are the things that sometimes we don't get to hear about right the the behind the scenes and the reality of how hard it can be to sell to a large corporation but also how rewarding it can be all while navigating just everything that we go through as all the rest. Exactly. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. um, And I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Renegade Ventures podcast. Join our Renegade email for business listings and more resources at renegade.biz. That's renegade.biz. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share our podcast so that more women can choose a different path to business owners.